truly in particular, we have the largest catalyst, I think, that has ever happened to a single company in this space ahead of us. And it's ours to take advantage of, along with everything that everyone else has. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, two-time returning to the podcast, Kim Rivers. Kim, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. How are you guys? Doing great. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Kim. Really excited to kind of dive into Florida and learn a little bit more about what's going on down south and on the East Coast. How are you, Brian? I'm very excited. And as Kim was telling us before, uh, she's got wonderful weather in Florida. Maybe not perfect for her, but for Kellen and I here in freezing cold, it is nice to have somebody bringing the heat. So, <laughs> Kim, how's how's everything going today? Uh, everything's everything's fantastic. So yeah, just uh, just actually finished a, a meeting with the Florida team um, right before this and talking about, you know, our plans just had a board meeting a couple weeks ago. So really excited about um, having plans solidified for uh, the year ahead. Awesome. So the first question on everyone's mind, Ron DeSantis, big news saying the marijuana legalization initiative will be on the state's November ballot predicting potential favorable legal outcome for activists. Just want to get your feeling on that when you saw that information was it how did that make you feel? Understanding all the implications, all the work behind your team helped lead to Shepherd to that moment. Yeah, well, we're not there yet, right? Um, so appreciate the vote of confidence for sure. And any good vibes that anyone wants to send, uh, send that way, we'll, we'll certainly, uh, you know, be very thankful for them. But we are, um, of course, you know, anxiously awaiting uh, the Supreme Court um, ruling. Uh, that can be any time between now and April 1st. Um, certainly, I, you know, listen, I think anyone who watched the hearing um, came away with a probably similar conclusion and that it, it definitely appears more likely than not that the, the court, at least in that hearing, was postured via their questions and the commentary from the justices. Um, and, and again, to just make sure that folks understand, right, This at this stage in the game, it's not, um, you know, an indication that the court you know, is in favor of legalization, right? And instead, it's really just that the ballot initiative and the wording of the ballot initiative is crafted in a way that it meets the state standards um, and that it's not misleading for voters between the ballot summary and the ballot text, and that it does um, address a single subject. And so we felt confident going in that the ballot language was was narrowly crafted um, to, to pass the test. And so, but certainly it's great to hear that the governor, um, I guess, agrees with that, um, agrees with that assessment. So, Kim, you have been a key figure in the Smart and Safe Florida campaign, right? Yep. You played a pivotal role in advocating for legalization. Can you share with us some of the challenges on this journey with shaping this initiative, particularly the language, and how that will impact Florida both economically and socially moving forward, if it does, of course? get through yeah. all of these other hurdles, right? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, look, each state is unique in terms of their ballot initiative process, right? And Florida is, I guess, no different in its, in its uniqueness. Florida is very strict on those two requirements that I just mentioned. And many, many initiatives have failed, including some marijuana initiatives have failed because they did not strictly follow um, the requirements um, that are set forth in our constitution on those two areas. And so for us, right, it's always... Um, hard because you, you know, it's 75 words um, on your summary. And again, that summary is what is really in front of the court. And so it's it's difficult because you want to put in, right, a lot of things um, into into the language, um, not to leave anything up for chance or discussion, but the reality is you just can't. And in Florida in particular, marijuana initiatives have failed because there have been too many things that have been included. And so, you know, one of the feedback points that we have gotten from the very beginning is that home grow is not included. And um, we are big supporters of home grow. Um, we sell clones. We actively participate in the home grow market wherever it is allowable. We support um, and I think are one of the only companies that have financially supported home grow initiatives in Florida in the past in a very meaningful way and um, petitions in our stores, et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, you cannot have um, both legalization or adult use and home grow in the same ballot um, initiative. And so that's one that we've gotten a lot of feedback on and folks will be like, oh, well, if there's not homegrown, I'm voting no. Well, that means that you're never voting on legalization because there will never be anything on the ballot in the state of Florida that has both of them in the, sa in a, in the, same, um, in the same initiative. Um, and I would just say that the other thing is, right, um, folks want it to be prescriptive, right? They want to know exactly what's gonna be in the program and exactly the types of products they're gonna be able to get. And exactly, and again, same thing, you just can't do that, 75 words. and. And there is a line where the Supreme Court will say, well, that's up to the legislature. That's not up to, right, that's not, you're, you're voting on the policy 
construct, right, in the policy item, you're not here to legislate, right, or prescribe exactly how that will be implemented. And so hopefully, again, after uh, this bill passes in November, we have to get 60% of the vote, which we can talk about. Um, Medical got the highest vote in Florida history at 72%, but we have to get 60% of the vote. Then it will go to uh, the legislature for implementation. And during that session or special session, a lot of those things would likely be ironed out in the spring. Yeah, and we got to dive into that entire process because as you said, I feel like sometimes I read one way and then hearing you describe it makes me feel like I've kind of understood it slightly differently. But I want to highlight one of these aspects. We had Charlie Bactel on a few weeks ago and he was talking about the tremendous work your team was doing was literally shepherding this forward. And I think like the industry deserves to praise you because in the past in the other states, there hasn't been a single leader like yourself to really shepherd the entire path. Has that been challenging to really take the entire like weight of the industry and pull them forward for this this process? Um, I mean, it's what we do, right? So, I mean, listen, um, you know, we felt like it was the right time. It's a presidential election. And we felt like, you know, that Florida is a huge, you know, for so many reasons for the industry, for um, a state like Florida, which is heavily Republican, um, you know, to, to come through for us to be able to have something on the ballot and to pass it um, and to clear 60%, I just think is a real testament or it could be a very, very much a testament to where we are as a country. I think that it is a game changer as it relates to the posture and the momentum at the federal level. I just, I can't think of something more important. And then obviously, of course, when you think about the impacts to our business in particular as well. And so for us, there really wasn't a choice, right? And I think it's unfortunate that others didn't participate on the front side. You know, I'm very hopeful um, and I'm having conversations now that, um, because now is the time that a coalition has to be built. So, I mean, you're talking about voter education. You're talking about kind of, you know, again, really, we don't know yet if there's going to be a strong opponent um, to this, right? The Chamber of Commerce has been making some noise. They recently conducted polling. They actually filed a brief in opposition um, at the Supreme Court as well. So, um, you know, once we get a Supreme Court favorable vote, um, it would be, gosh, such a shame if the industry wasn't able to come together and actually push it across the finish line. So I am um, hopeful that, um, and I would just ask anyone anyone watching, um, that's my ask for you is to contact, contact your other companies. You know, it's okay. Like, you know, folks go to a lot of other dispensaries too and contact them and just, you know, tell them that you expect them at this point to participate in the fight. You know, we were happy to do it up to this point, but we need we need additional support. Um, and so that, that would be my, I guess, if I can ask uh, anyone watching and listening um, for the next uh, for the next little while to, to please, please, please um, reach out to your other CEOs and let them know that they need to participate in a meaningful way in Florida. What's been the, the biggest win for you so far during this crazy journey of trying to push this through? Uh, the biggest win? It was very satisfying, I will say, I won't call it a win, but it was very satisfying to hear the court's response. Um, It was very satisfying to hear justices who are conservative justices on the court make comments back to the state around, um, you know, this this seems, you know, of course this would, you know, of course this language you know, and, um, and so it's just very reaffirming, I would say, in the work that we've put in to get to that stage. And, and like I said, hopefully we'll have a formal ruling on that, um, you know, moving moving forward here shortly. And just making assumptions as a recovering lawyer, I would assume that your previous skill sets are very applicable for some of these nuances, like you were saying, understanding the intricate details on how to get this from where it is today, but also where it needs to go forward, given all of the, the challenging legal processes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't listen. I mean, do I personally, like with my background, completely geek out that there is something in front of the Supreme Court that I had a, a hand in working on? <laughs> Sure. And I think that, um, you know, that's, that's of course, very rewarding for the team as well. I mean, we've got an amazing team of lawyers. Um, the campaign has done an amazing job up to this point as well. And so um, this work has, has been years in the making. Um, a lot of analysis, of course, went into it as well. And so um, certainly it's, it's, always, it's always good to see, um, again, have positive, positive reinforcement in terms of the work that your team has put together, um, you know, at that level. And your background really helps with that uh, word selection, probably. Yeah, I mean, and again, I'm not doing it on my own. I'm not like, you know, I'm not like sitting by my fire, like drafting, like writing. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how this goes. Like it is a, it is absolutely. A lot of effort, but when you are brainstorming about words. I'm definitely involved in the conversation, maybe more than they want me to be, just because again, I'm a lawyer. And so I do like to kind of geek out around this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, certainly, certainly having that background 
background is is helpful um, when you're you know when you're when you're in the, in the middle of this type of a process. I think Kellen's alluding to he's thinking you're sitting in front of ChatGPT, seventy five words to put in front of the ballot and kind of like <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, ChatGPT it wasn't that like when we this was a while <laughs> back, so it's uh, yeah that would be interesting exercise though. Now at this point, it would okay. be a, a little side by side comparison. <laughs> so let's go through the steps so everyone listening can understand exactly where we are today, January twenty fifth, and then kind of like how we can get to let's say the finish line of where we want to go. Sure. So again, next step is Supreme Court ruling. Supreme Court issues new opinions every Thursday. They have, at least that's been their cadence, and that's what it says on their website. So sometime one Thursday between now and the beginning of April, they will issue a ruling on this topic, assuming that ruling is favorable, or I like to speak it into the universe when that is favorable. Uh, we then move into the next phase of the campaign, um, which would be get out the vote and public education. And so um, we'll, of course, work with the campaign, uh, hopefully along with right other um advocates and, and organizations and MSOs to um, to work on, right, what that next phase is going to look like. Just an outline of that now. Um, we'll launch that into the, into the market. And then um, the vote will be November alongside the presidential election. Again, it has to pass with 60% approval. And after it passes, then um, there is a self- implementing clause in the language that basically states that current operators will be able to begin sales six months from the date of passage. So you fast forward six months, happens to be Cinco de Mayo, um, and uh, <laughs> or that's going to be a party. Y'all should come. We would begin adult use sales. In between those times, there is a regularly scheduled legislative session that is also by design. So the legislative session will happen and Again, they don't have to, but in, again, all other kind of ballot initiatives, there will be an implementation uh, bill that will be run that will squarely address the adult use program. And so that is when, again, substantively, right, the the decisions around do things change? Do they not change? Are they adding another an additional licensing structure? Are they, you know, going to change the type of products that are available? Are they all of those things would be addressed during that implementation? And again, it could be very light and that they just take the existing statute and they put over it medical and adult use. Like that's on one extreme, right? The other extreme is that they could have a completely new set of statutes that go into that go into um, play. The only requirement is that it has to actually implement the vote or the will of the people as outlined in the constitutional amendment. So that's where I guess you're asking for the other operators to participate in that kind of process of educating everyone because that is the the, the time to act, right? Like I am asking, can't. yeah, it's the between now and the vote. We've right. got the biggest hurdle. The, the next biggest hurdle is going to be the vote and clearing that sixty percent. And so they need, you know, we need um, right folks to step up to the plate in terms of dollars. It's very expensive in the state of Florida. We have twenty one million residents, and it's a very large state that has a ton of different media uh, segments across the state. It's expensive because it's a presidential election year, right? But we've got to get into households and we have to ed educate folks who don't know anything about cannabis in terms of why, right, they, this, is, this is the right thing for them to, to vote yes on for the state of Florida. And that's where I think it, it makes the most sense because those medical operators that would be converting to adult use have everything to gain, right? This is the opportunity right. now where you carried all the water here. Now it's like, guys, it's put up or shut up time because if we don't get the votes, then it doesn't act in our favor. So how do you then deploy your resources internally, understanding that you've got to focus all this educational campaign, but at the same time, as the largest operator in Florida, converting your stores from medical to rec probably isn't like, hey, we're just going to switch on a light and everything is golden. How, how do you deploy those research? How do you utilize them properly in order to have, let's say, both of them humming to optimization properly? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's execution, execution, execution. I mean, we've been spending a lot of time on just exactly that within our, uh, our Florida teams and um, allocating um, resources, both from a human capital perspective, from a financial perspective, and, um, you know, mapping out, right, um, timelines in terms of, because remember, we have this idle capacity that we would, you know, be bringing back online and, you know, stores and store conversions, to your point, when do we hire, right? How, how quickly do we hire and where are we adding um, additional resources and at, at what rate? And so there's a plan and uh, I feel pretty, I feel pretty good about it. And listen, to your point, this is the single largest opportunity that Trulieve has and that we've had in the history of our, our organization. To put it in perspective, you know, we currently have just 130 stores. Um, when you think about and 
that's, you know, we'll, we'll give store guidance um, on our call um, here February 29th. So stay tuned, you know, in terms of, in terms of what that's going to look like moving forward, but to put it into perspective, I think, I think, and um, please fact check me if someone knows that there's something different out there, but I believe that the largest conversion from a store footprint standpoint in the past has been 20 stores in a rec flip. So 20 stores, Versus today, 130. So yes, there is a lot to do. Um, so um, you know, I think that you know the opportunity, which I've said in the past, we we estimate to be approximately six billion dollars. There is going to be plenty for everyone, um, and that's the other kind of point here, guys. It's not that you know we're saying, oh well, come and help, and then we're gonna, you know, it's it's all gonna be it's all gonna be the opportunity is is more than enough, right, for everyone. I mean, I would love to, but I don't think I'm gonna be in a position, regardless of how fast I move, to be able to singularly service the six billion dollar market from where we sit today. So, right, there's there's plenty of opportunity for folks. It's gonna be really really exciting, and um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's just uh, you know, head down and laser focused um between between now and then. And I'm also I will say very excited about um where this team is and where we are as an organization. Um, as a whole, but also specifically in Florida um, coming into the new year. And so really in the meeting we were just talking is really continuing that positive momentum. It's really playing out really nicely just to continue that momentum straight into uh, straight into um, the adult use, the adult use switch. I think one of the fun parts of 6 billion as an estimate is that it's an estimate and it could potentially be way higher given, let's say, the appetite for demand for what cannabis has quickly shown in some of the other states like Missouri that has exploded and people are like, those numbers are just blown out of the water. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's going to be right. Like, I mean, I just think the reality is that there's going to be some supply, right, um, initially. But to your point, right, I do think that Florida does have an opportunity to uh, to, to really be a leader. And it'll scale up, right? But converting all of your stores over isn't just like buying a new neon sign that says rec instead of med, right? It seems like there's a little more to it. But with everything that is going on in Florida, that's not the only location that truly operates in. So like all of that's going on, you probably have your A team working on Florida just based on the opportunity. How are you balancing Georgia with everything that's going on there with the pharmacies and all of that? Like kind of talk us through like where you're allocating your resources. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say that as an organization, right, we've been pretty transparent in that we've got, you know, several corner, what we call cornerstone markets, right? And so for us, it's Florida, Pennsylvania, and um, Arizona. I would say that, um, you know, in addition to those, you have Maryland, which is a recent rec flip that we're certainly paying um, attention to because we do see um, continued growth opportunities in that particular market. And it's instructive for us to really be close to the consumer, even though it's a smaller market, just in terms of what trends are we seeing and how the applicability from a recency perspective um, into, again, a potential, you know, the adult use flip um, in Florida. So, you know, Pennsylvania has been doing exceptional, exceptionally well. Um, for us, we absolutely have seen prices stabilize um, in that market and in some cases actually kind of have regained some pricing leverage. And um, we're seeing additional flexibility with the consumer there, particularly with our in-house brands. And so it was really um, a very uh, critical strategic initiative for us last year to um, get some momentum behind our branded products through branded retail. Team's done an amazing job. Number one sellers in our stores are our uh, Modern Flower brands, um, as well as our Roll One. Um, and really, we have a significant adoption rate of our customers with our internal brands. Wholesale is also growing in that state for us. And so, Team's just done an, an amazing, amazing job in Pennsylvania. And again, we're kind of thinking about that state, laying the groundwork and foundational work, because I think ultimately, right, that state will also pivot to adult use. The win on that is a little, a little bit um, harder to pin down, just because, again, we believe it would happen through legislative action there, but, you know, call it you know, two, three, maybe four years. So again, kind of continuing to focus there ahead of that. Arizona is another person market. Really excited about coming into 2024 in Arizona. We're finally at the point in time where we feel comfortable. Our supply chain has stabilized. Our cultivation assets are are working right to our standards. Um, we're able to relaunch um, some some brands that had really gone, we weren't super comfortable leaning into um, just because of uh, where we were on the back of house side of things, but we are now. Um, 
Um, and we're excited that we are going to be rebranding 100% of that portfolio this next year to True Leaf stores. So we have um, ground up, launched a few True Leaf stores to sort of test market that branding and the, how the brand resonates there and just great feedback. And so we're we're ready to turn the corner and to turn the page and to make that uh, truly a cornerstone True Leaf state. Very excited. We're launching here in I think, days our uh, loyalty 2.0 platform um, in, in Arizona as well. And so, which will be, of course, truly, um, truly forward. And so again, lots of good things happening, um, for us, we believe in the, in the state of Arizona. And then Maryland has been, um, amazing, you know, as most operators, but for us as well. And again, real opportunity for us to not only have that first line view in terms of customers through our retail stores, but also of course, brands, brand adoption, um, through our, our wholesale channel there as well. And I'd love to get into the brands, but I want to ask about the Northeast Hub because I see a few states and I know there's one missing in particular that I'm going to have to ask about. But first, I want to talk about New Jersey because people were very excited to to hear that announcement. Can you give just our listeners a little more insight why New Jersey became like a critical target for your team? Yeah, so it was a critical target for our team two years ago when we applied. So literally, that was a two-year, that was a two-year application, guys. And I got to tell you, at this point, I don't know that we're going to be moving forward with it today. We are at a point in time where I think we're a little late, just candidly, to that market. And um, a little, um, I would say, right, as we think about the Northeast, I've got a few markets that we're very focused on. We're focused on Pennsylvania. I'm focused on Ohio, which we can talk about. And I think that portfolio is going to be expanding here in short order. As we bring to a conclusion, the litigation that we have there will have a platform with existing retail and some additional stores that we'll be able to build, right? And then, um, and then of course, Maryland, which I just mentioned. And then, of course, you've got Connecticut as well. And so we've got things that are in in the works and that are, you know, in action there. And I think that one of the lessons that we've learned certainly over the years um, is, um, you know, and listen, we're, I think, hopefully known for this to a certain extent, is not to get distracted by the shiny object and sort of what folks, what may be working for others and to know your strengths and to know when it's time to lean in and when it's time to potentially back away. And I think for us, um, New Jersey, I've got, again, some really concerns about the midterm viability of that market um, or what I see in that market. I think the folks that got in early um, are doing well, and that's wonderful. I just think that the risk reward for us um, losing focus and trying to prop up and and launch a a whole brand new market right now, given the other opportunities we have in the Northeast and candidly what we have to focus on in Florida. I mean, listen, I was just in in New York talking to investors and I said, everyone in, in in, in the room or in the meeting, if I start talking about something other than our three cornerstone markets, but particularly Florida and this opportunity in front of Florida, we're talking about billions of dollars at stake for our organization. Tell me that I'm crazy. Take your money elsewhere. What have you? I mean, that is what I should be focused on. That's what we should be focused on. It is the largest opportunity that we have ever had within this company. And, um, you know, shame on me if we don't double down. And I, I tell folks all the time, we're on the 10 yard line, right? My football analogies. And um, we have to get a touchdown and candidly, I want the two points. We should not be happy with a field goal and I dang sure can't fumble the ball. And the easiest way to fumble the ball, as you guys know, is you start running one direction, right, without actually fully securing the opportunity that's in front of you. And so we have to secure the opportunity that's in front of us. And then listen, if we do it right, we can buy whatever business we want. So I mean, right. It's going to be okay. So um, it doesn't mean that our M&A days are over. It doesn't mean expansion's over. It just means that we're focused on the opportunities that's going to give us the capital and going to give us the um, the ability to have so exponential optionality um, in our decision-making moving forward. Um, it really will change the change the trajectory of, of the business. It's still a, a tough pill to swallow. I mean, there's so many people that put a ton of effort into getting one of those licenses. And I can't imagine how much effort your team put in and waiting two years and all that stuff. So that had to be a really emotional decision that you guys made as a team. I wouldn't say that it's emotional. I mean, I think it's very, right, again, this is a team that understands, right? We've made investments. We've had to pull out of, we've pulled out of markets, right? What's emotional is when you go into a market, you hire a bunch of folks, right? You start something and then you have to back away from that commitment because it's not working out. So, right, what I would rather do is make a strategic decision on the front side, say, thank you, no, thank you, 
right? I mean, trust me, the team that worked on it, they, they're fine. Um, we have structures in place, so they're good on a win, right? And yeah. they're continuing to win, which is what they do, right? And listen, we have to have the ability that we're placing bets and we're not, we don't necessarily know how those markets are going to evolve when we place the bet, right? We don't necessarily, it's still the, the lowest cost bet that you can place, right? And so here we sit, it looked one way to us two years ago, mm-hmm. right? And if we would have gotten that, if we would have been in an early round and right, then it would have made a, it's a whole completely different calculus and analysis, right? Where we're looking at it today and we're going, hang on a minute, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many folks call me and ask me if I want to buy their New, New Jersey cultivation or, or you know, retail. I get called, I mean, it's, it's frequent, weekly, right? So it's not like there aren't opportunities in, in Jersey if we decide that we want to be there, but ground up build and that's a whole nother, that's great. I mean, think about that. That's, we're not talking about 2024. That'll be a 2025 activity, right? I mean, it's just not... Um, it, it, again, we're, we're focused on, um, where we believe the biggest reward is to the company. Yeah. And the whole New Jersey market is just a percentage of what the Florida market is yeah. for sure. So it makes complete sense. And yeah. I think given all the, let's say the chessboard with the map going on, it's, it's critical that your team can recognize like, this is just not right for today. Given the fact that we won this, that's great. Congratulations guys. But given what we need to accomplish right now, which is score touch on Florida, all those resources, which are not, unfortunately just not infinite, need to be focused here. But unfortunately, the one place that you left out is I don't think I'm getting cultivar collection in New York anytime soon. <laughs> oh, no, you're not, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but again, right, check me in a couple of years, right, where, you know, here we are, we're sitting on um, as, as the, you know, hopefully the biggest player in the state of Florida, which has gone recreational, our, uh, our earnings calls and what we're talking about look a whole, a whole lot different than they do today, right? I mean, we've got a, a triple on our largest market, um, I think, conservatively. And um, yeah, I don't think that you're going to be upset about that, because the reality is, again, if we decide that New York is somewhere we need to be, we can be in New York. So it's how you focus your resources. And, you know, and and look, I mean, I think folks who have been in New York, who've been fighting for that market, right, there's still a lot of wood to chop there. And I think they're moving in the right direction. We're starting to see some positivity there. But we made that decision similar, right? Like we made that strategic decision. I remember reading the regs, the draft, like early version of the draft regs. And it was clear to me at the time that New York as a state did not want multi-state operators as key business owners in their in their you know burgeoning recreational use program. And you know, we made the call that look, there was there were other opportunities that we wanted to focus on that we believed were, you know, were, were more aligned with our strengths, right? And every company isn't going to have the same strengths or the same areas that they're focusing in. I feel very comfortable and confident um, in terms of our strategy and where we are focused. And it's going to be different. It always has been, right? Um, it's it's probably going to be a little different than than our peers. And that's worked out and it's okay. Go uh, so, see your parents, Brian. You know, selfishly out of that. Drive your family closer. <laughs> Smart. Pennsylvania, will go rack. You'll be able to come on down. My mom right? will be very happy with that statement, Kelly. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Kim, Kim, unfortunately or unfortunately, however you want to describe it, Florida is not the only massive news going on in the cannabis industry. Rescheduling is making massive yeah. ways and people are having to prepare differently. How is your team handling that news? And does it alter anything internally from positioning standpoint? I know everybody taking some 280E stances. I don't want you to elaborate there. But first, overall rescheduling, excited. How was your feeling once that announcement started coming forward? Yeah, I mean, certainly I was, and again, this is maybe the lawyer in me, super excited to be able to read the unredacted, um, you know, HHS full report. Um, I think there's a lot of really incredible information in, in that report. Also, I think how they framed certain aspects of it, the fact that they chose to compare and in depth compare um, cannabis to alcohol, which they typically do not do um, in a report like that, because alcohol, of course, is not scheduled at all. Um, so that was really interesting to me. So um, I would just encourage anyone one who, you know, if you have extra time on a weekend or whatever, um, it's it's worth printing out and actually and actually reading it. And I think also, right, and the the fact that just the the level of scientific um, data and review that was done, of course, FDA, so one would expect that to a certain extent, and all of the reports that were cited, et cetera, it's just a great, um, and I think will continue to be a really important document for our industry as we continue, um, you know, our fight against prohibition. So I'll, I'll start there. I was very excited about that. I mean, I think as it relates to the DEA and, and, and that conversation, I, from my, from my vantage point, I guess nothing has really changed on that end. Um, you know, I think everyone's still, you know, is speculating that it would be some point in this, this year, right. And um, that it would make sense politically for it to be ahead of the presidential election, you know, 
Short of that, right, obviously I'm very involved with National Cannabis Roundtable. We have our own group of um, federal lobbyists. And and really, I think that's that's kind of the DEA. It's the DEA. So, I mean, if anyone's expecting that there's going to be a leak of information from the DEA, I think that's the least likely agency that we would have a leak from, um, candidly. So, um, you know, I think we're going to know when we know, um, but certainly encouraged by um, encouraged by the release of the report, the thoroughness of it. And um, it seems to be moving along, right, um, kind of in an as expected way. Broad strokes, do you think it is good for the industry or bad for the industry? Oh, you know? I think it's absolutely, of course, it's good for the industry. I mean, it's super exciting for the industry. I mean, I think it's, again, you know, we're gaining momentum, right? And it's difficult to see oftentimes when you're focused on, you know, share price and, and, or right, like the minutiae of like, oh, it didn't happen when it was supposed, supposed to happen, which we create <laughs> those own narratives within the sector, which is um, interesting from a um, dynamics perspective. But yeah, I mean, I think that when you are, if you're able to zoom out and you just think about, I think about, right, well, when I started this journey right back in 2015 to where we are today, I mean, Geez, I mean, cannabis wasn't even talked about, right? And um, back then, at the na- at the national level, and I mean, now there's real, true engagement by our, our our folks, both in the executive branch and, of course, in the legislative branch. And now we've got um, you know agency uh, involvement. So um, it is absolutely continuing. That momentum is continuing to build. Rescheduling, of course, is would be monumental um, as it relates to again the history, right, of of cannabis reform, and, and again the end to, to ultimately ultimately the end to prohibition. So, um, I don't think we can understate that. I mean, in terms of practical impacts to the companies, right? I mean, we talk about right. Obviously, it's two it's two eighty e taxes. But I don't think that's it. And I've said this before. I think it's also, and maybe more importantly, when we look back. Um, you know, will be, right, that this is the domino that then led to, right, the ability to get all of these other changes um, through um, on, a, on a national scale. Yeah. And I think it just it just really can't be understated how major of a catalyst like that rescheduling process would be. Sure, the 280E implications would be wonderful for all the large companies, but also the smaller companies, too, who would benefit from it. But I think the one part that keeps getting forgotten about with 280 re- removal is the customer's benefit, right? Because if there isn't that additional, let's say, tax burden, everybody kind of benefits from that. And I just wonder why that's not a commonly shared amongst like the industry and the community so that the consumers recognize that there are additional benefits as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard. I think it's one of those things, candidly, Brian, I just think it's hard to quantify. And I think that, right, until we're able to really, again, quantify it, and I think different operators are going to utilize it differently. And so I think in some places, there'll be more consumer impact than others. To your point, I think it will be available, right, for for all. And certainly, like, when we look at efficiencies and savings, right, I mean, so just as an example, right, in our, in our, 750,000 square foot building in Florida, where we're getting, you know, incredible efficiencies, incredible volumes, really super high THC percentages, et cetera, the customer is absolutely benefiting, right? We're taking those cost savings and in part, right, sharing those with, with the customer. They're getting an amazing product. It's a scale. It's a win, win, win. We're able to, you know, preserve margin. It's just, it's, it's great, right? So, I mean, to your point, I think that absolutely is a fallout. I just think that it's, it will vary because, right, some of these companies, they have, I mean, a lot of the companies have significant amounts of debts that they have to pay off. They've got to, right, like there are other things because it's been such a cash constrained business for so long that we'll have to catch up, I think. So I think there's going to be a little bit of maybe a lag in, in, to the to ultimate consumer, maybe just again, because I think there's some cleanup that has to happen first. And then, right, you would see the reinvestment, you would see the job creation, you would see that, right, like all of those downstream positive impacts um, to, the, to, the, to the consumer. How is rescheduling related to safe banking? I know they're separate. Can you kind of like just lay it out for everyone and show what the true difference is between these kind of acronyms? Sure. So rescheduling is solely um, within the executive branch. So um, let's start there. Okay. So safer banking is a bill that's going through Congress. So those are two separate, like this is the, how a bill becomes the law and how, you know, kind of from back thank in you, our, thank you. back in our, um, yeah, back in our day, um, which I feel I like everyone, everyone, needs to re- everyone needs to rewatch. Like we should just PSA in the last 10 minutes, we should show that video. Um, so um, yeah, so rescheduling, right, is a process that was launched by, by President Biden. It first goes to the FDA. The FDA then recommends the scheduling. Um, 
um, to the DEA, specifically DOJ. And so um, HHS was just looking at things from a purely scientific evidence. Is it, you know, where which schedule does it best fit? They are recommending schedule three. And then um, that's from a, a health in, or a, a health perspective. And again, all the scientific evidence. Then DOJ is just looking at it through a um, really a safety lens. So they take on more of, again, that, that, that consumer safety and public safety uh, lens. And they are taking the recommendation from HHS and now... Uh, analyzing it through their lens, and then they ultimately um, will make, or hopefully, in this case, agree with that recommendation. Then it goes to rulemaking. Um, Again, an administrative process through the um, executive branch goes to rulemaking. There's a comment period, and then it turns into a final rule. So that's that process. Safer banking is a bill. Safer banking is a bill that is in um, that is in Congress, so it is in the congressional side of things. Currently, that sits in the in the Senate. Is safe, a version of safer banking has passed a number of times um, through the House, um, but has never been able to get through the Senate. In this kind of world that we live in today, sort of on the other side, we're in the Senate, and it started in the Senate, and so we are in in the Senate process of safer banking, and it will make its way through the regular, I'll call it legislative process in terms of how a bill becomes law. There's several ways that that can happen, right? Um, it can happen through a normalized standalone bill process, which we're, we've kicked off, and that's that's moving. Um, it can happen through an add-on to, um, you know, a um, what we call kind of omnibus process, which happens at very specific times during the year. For example, defense and spending, budget, right? There's certain certain times that it could be added to that as well, which we've been through a couple of cycles of that over the years. So related, and then they both have to do with cannabis. Unrelated in terms of the completely different processes that they're in. Safe banking has to do with um, providing um, banking uh, availability to legal cannabis businesses, specifically by providing a safe harbor to your financial institutions who choose to bank cannabis such that they are safeguarded and their compliance departments will give the green light that they can actually um, work with us. Thank you for, yeah, that was, that was like a full textbook. That was, we got the, we watched that. That's important, right? Because it's complicated. Taxes, right? Schedule three, maybe you get institutional funding, right? Because it changes your international narcotics treaties. And, you know, safe banking sounds really similar to a lot of people too. So like, that was a beautiful breakdown. Thank you so much. Thank you for (laughs) attending my TED talk. (laughs) One of the favorite topics I've seen on Twitter is if schedule three is confirmed, people are pretending or scenario planning out how would a company like yours allocate those dollars. So I would assume, given your strategic approach, you've thought through various scenarios and potentially if Schedule 3 is confirmed, you would allocate them through X. Is there any scenarios you could share potentially if this would go down, how you would envision utilizing those resources? Nothing that we've said publicly. Um, what I can tell you is that, right, we are, of course, um, very focused on capital allocation, capital management. And we are very focused on, again, I think I've been very clear, taking advantage of opportunities that are in front of us. And um, we'll be you know, reinvesting into our business. We think we've got a number of growth drivers that are embedded in platform. Um, and then, of course, remaining opportunistic um, in the future. But you know, I think that we have shown um, the ability which is thankful, very thankful. And and this is from a lot of hard work to be, you know, to generate cash. We've put in place a number of strategic initiatives about almost two years ago at this point that are starting to show up, right, um, in our financials. And they showed up in a meaningful way in Q3. um, And we've said that we're going to remain dedicated to to that um, continuing. So we're generating cash, right? Um, And I think it's important to note um, standalone in the underlying kind of core business, if you will. But I mean, certainly to have the relief of, of 280E, right? When you look at it in 2022, it was $137 million um, that we paid in for, for 280E taxes. So it's not nothing. And certainly it would it would change, right? Um, the dynamics of the business, it would change when, when institutions, for example, are looking at the financial health and viability of our businesses and maybe they don't completely understand 280E. And I'm hopeful that it will change me and, you know, Christine, who's my director, you know, VP of IR, et cetera, having to spend 10 minutes every earnings having a conversation about taxes. <laughs> that would be fantastic um, as well. And just be in a, a normalized tax position where like every other business in the United States of America, um, where we're able to deduct uh, normalized business expenses and, and, and operate according to, again, a, a normalized uh, tax regime. Can you just elaborate one step further with the 
IRS because I, I saw you spoke at, speak at MJ Biz about it wasn't you go. not paying your taxes. <laughs> and I just want to make sure that people understand right. like the strategic differences and, and some of the approaches made, because I think that was a very creative strategic move. And I, I think in the past, you've said you didn't want to get an A plus in paying taxes. You wanted to be uh, <laughs> a passing grade. Did I elaborate the carpet? It's hard for us. It's hard for us. Um, yeah, sure. So, um, so really, um, so let me kind of give my my little, uh, my little again. I'll give my TED talk on on truly tax tax strategy. So, um, we uh, we are paying taxes. Let me just let me just say that. And um, what we have done is in uh, which we announced in October, we filed for a refund for 2019, 2020, and 2021 280e portion of our taxes that we've already paid. The IRS already has our money. So we said, IRS, we don't believe that we owe those dollars. And we have worked with a law firm and we have a strategy and we have a a pretty robust legal position in terms of why we believe that we do not owe uh, 280e taxes. And so we asked for our money back. And in addition, what we said now, other part, we have been paying fully loaded 280e plus regular underlying corporate taxes on our business through mid-year 2023. Okay, so just keep in mind, we were fully paid up until right mid-year of 2023. Um, So then what we said is, okay, since we're contesting, we filed for a refund, we are not going to be paying the 280E portion of our taxes moving forward because you cannot protest over here and say we don't owe it, yet continue to pay it. It doesn't work that way. I would just encourage folks, if you're really interested, you should look at Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has a disputed tax payment with the IRS and transfer taxes. They've been disputing for years and they're doing exactly the same thing. They filed for a refund. And then basically what they do is you carry what's called an uncertain tax position on your books. And so that uncertain tax position on our books, we're we're accruing basically. So we're accruing for those, those payments that we're no longer making as it relates to 280E. What we are doing is we are paying the IRS as a regular tax filer. So that is what we're doing. So the IRS is still getting checks from us. They're still getting returns from us, right? That is in sharp contrast to several of our peers who completely stopped paying the IRS anything. And we call it only the gap year. They took a gap year in taxes, right? And so they stopped paying for a year, 18 months, whatever the case may be, right? And then basically they said, IRS, and they had to do this because it's the only way they could get a payment plan. IRS, we are insolvent. We don't have enough cash on our books to pay our back taxes. So we need you to enter into a payment plan with us so that we can pay and we can settle this debt with you, which includes payment of of interest and and penalties on a go-forward basis. And they have entered into that binding agreement with the IRS moving forward. So that's the difference, right, between between the two. We're asking for a refund. We're accruing. It's very, we'll be very transparent. We'll continue to be very transparent in our financials in terms of what's where and who and what. And then um, what we've said and one of the concerns and reason why we did it is because let's assume that um, 280E goes away through rescheduling in 2024, right? And what maybe could happen is that there could be a scenario where those folks who hadn't paid they're in a settlement agreement, right? Go and say, I want to renegotiate, right? I want to negotiate a lower amount because now you know 280 doesn't apply, what have you. We certainly didn't want to be in a spot where we made an A plus on our taxes. Thanks, truly appreciate it. You paid all of these hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And, and we don't have a leg to stand on in terms of from a negotiated negotiating position. A. B, if we were going to invoke a tax strategy, and you look at kind of the timing. I think it makes strategic sense to do it in a time when you've got, again, the largest catalyst in the history of the company in front of you um, as we look at as we look at the rec opportunity um, in the near term. So um, there were a bunch of reasons and rationale. We feel very good about where we sit. We feel very good with the precedent in terms of how we're treating it. Again, it's very transparent um, and we are not in the same boat and that we're not saying that it's not that we can't. It's that we are, you know, we have a, a very specific legal position that we are, we need to get to fruition, and we need to bring to conclusion right prior to us restarting the the fully loaded two eighty e payments. So you're on the board. The board is on on board yep. with it and everything, right? My my question is, where did the inception of this idea come from? Was it like one of the your law firms was like, "Hey Kim, like check this out," like, and then you guys kind of had a, a conversation about it? Was it a board member like? 
Because that's a brilliant idea. I'm just curious how it all came came up, you know? (laughs) Shout out to our chief legal officer, I will tell you. Um, He he really had been researching and he just, you know, he had, he's got a pretty um, robust tax kind of knowledge base from, from prior, from prior roles and prior careers. Um, and then I would say along with, right, our, our finance team, and then of course our board also um, got a number of, um, you know, very strategic thinkers on our, our board. So it was definitely a, a collaborative effort with a lot of research, a lot of research, um, a lot of work behind the scenes, but yeah, really um, excited. And, and again, I think one of those, one of those where, for us, it didn't make sense um, to kind of pursue, pursue the avenue that many of our peers were going down. Yet at the same time, right, we're looking at it from a competitive perspective and we're like, well, here, you know, analyst reports, oh, this cash flow and everything else. Like, oh, my God, they, they stopped paying taxes. Right. Like, <laughs> so what, you know, and so I think it's just, you know, again, trying to trying to find a solution that works for us um, and that we feel like we can can stand behind and that, um, you know, is authentic to um, to our business and, and our specific position. Yeah. And I think that's really clear. And I appreciate you elaborating on that because sometimes those differences kind of all get muddled together and it's really hard to tell the specific differences between all the players involved. So slightly switching gears, brands, we sat here about a year ago now, and I have seen look like you've taken a serious expansion towards kind of the house of brands your team has. Has that been an important focus, especially from an educational standpoint, understanding what we talked about earlier with with educating the consumers and saying, here are the brands, this is how it works. Can you kind of just elaborate on the brand strategy? Yeah. So, I mean, I am, um, yeah, I'm very excited about the work that that team has done. Um, Always more to do in that area. And there will always be more to do in that area. So it's always constant iteration. We've retired 17 brands um, in our portfolio over the last, um, I think maybe last year or so, um, and really narrowed the focus into very clear, I think, um, easier to understand, making it more approachable for our consumers to, um, to quickly again, um, for, for brands to resonate with them. Um, and so um, it has been really important for us. And we're seeing the the rewards of that effort come through on, you know, all of our, again, our adoption rates, um, percentage of portfolio and markets where it's a mixed shelf, right? And really flexing that muscle and continuing to lean in. Um, I mentioned, you know, a couple of our, our really, um, our strong, strong brand performers, um, Roll One, which is our, our value brand, um, which has a cross both flower, but also um, the the vape and concentrate segments. Um, Modern Flower, again, mid-tier, um, has super strong following. Um, we like kind of stand on variety and strength of genetics um, for that for that particular brand um, segment, but also in not only flower, but also in um, live or elevated, um, you know, cartridges, um, sauce carts, um, and, and actually a unique formulation that we have in that brand as well called HT Carts. So, um, and both of those have been performing really well. And it's been really important for us to have strong brands in those categories and not only premium because of just where the consumer really has been and has has lived in the last call it 12 to 18 months and um, we are starting to see and it's interesting um in the consumer some trading and um, between between brands particularly you know we're starting to see this value folks kind of peak up and 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 move um in certain in certain aspects but giving them somewhere to move to right um that is very comfortable and that they've already been um you know educated on um in our, in our stores and seeing the products kind of on a side-by-side basis. And so they kind of understand, okay, this is the next spot, right? And then this is the next spot. And so um, it's been it's been really great to see. And then, of course, our edibles brand, which is Sweet Talk, um, which I really love. Um, and that's launched in all of our markets as well and is doing really, really well, except for, I should mention, except for Pennsylvania, because we don't have, unfortunately, edibles yet available um, in that market. But sure will be. Is that cannabis 2.0 kind of taking the next step with consumers kind of understanding where they go? Because I know you've spoken highly about optionality and giving the consumer various preferences. So I want to ask you to elaborate that. And then I want to ask one specific question. Is there a brand or partner over the last 12 months that you knew right away when you tried it or heard it, you're like, this is going to crush here. And then it absolutely delivered. Yeah. So, um, okay. So on Cannabis 2.0, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have been um, working um, very diligently and again, it's always, we're always iterating on it, right? On our personas and really understanding at a very um, specific level who our customers are, being able to track and trace their um, their evolution because it doesn't necessarily mean they don't necessarily stay the same in our space because again, the space is constantly evolving and, um, you know, we, we put somebody in a persona, but then as they continue their cannabis journey, do they stay there? Do they flex? Like what is the whole cat is a whole group moving right in a certain way. And so it's been fascinating because unlike a lot of other sectors where you have really kind of maybe more 
stable or stationary customer journeys. And cannabis is not is not that. And so it's very dynamic. And our, our marketing and data and data science team has been doing a wonderful job. And then taking that information, actually actionizing it. Right? We talk a lot about that. We talk about actionable data because as an organization, right, one of the one of the pitfalls is that you can just drown in data. And you know, all of a sudden you have 200 pages of reports and you don't even know what it is you're looking at or for, or why do I have this and what am I supposed to do with it? So it's really a laser focus on what are we pulling, how often, and what is what is this informing, right? What action are we taking dependent on what this says, you know, one way or the other? Um, and really utilizing that information to build back into our CDP, which is our consumer data platform, which can target message, right, um, to that person um, to help drive behavior that we're trying to influence. And so um, it's, it's, it's really exciting stuff. And I'm very excited as we, again, look at these markets and the progression of the markets um, for us to be able to continue to lean into that um, over over time in a more and more and more in scaled way. Um, so so that's really um, that's really exciting. In terms of brands that have crushed it, we have, I'm fortunate to work with a number of wonderful partners. You know, I can say, um, and, you know, we don't necessarily have every partner in every market because it is dependent on the particular state and et cetera, et cetera. But I will say that our relationship with Connected has been very um, positive. Um, in, in our state of in the state of Florida, it's been interesting because it's California, and so um, we've worked with them on right. Growing in California is not the same as growing in Florida at all, and so um, we worked with them in terms of you know some of their you know the just their methodologies and kind of the how and why and certain things that worked there that don't work here and um you know different environmental conditions completely but you know it's been a good partnership it's been um for the most part very collaborative and um i think they're um you know learning also kind of scale and how to write the challenges there and so um that's been and they, and they do really really um well for us and more of that i'll call it premium um segment and then um i would just say an organic brand um that that does uh, that does great for us is Sunshine. Um, that's a you know Florida Florida originated um, you know advocacy backed um, brand, and they just have such a cult following and um, really show up. Um, in a very real way um, for our, our consumers and, um, you know, are looking for, you know, potential expansion opportunities. So we're excited um, to see them and their entrepreneurial kind of journey um, continue to continue to grow. Is there any way that you guys uh, standardize your data from state to state in terms of like Arizona has a specific demographic, Florida yeah. does, and then you can try to pick out specific brands that you choose to deploy? Is that kind of like your methodology? Well, yes and yes and no. Um, so we're not necessarily right now today, we're not necessarily in the market, I would call it for additional brands, right? We feel pretty mm -hmm. confident. I just said we got rid of 17, right? So yeah. we're in we're in the process of really making sure that the portfolio we have is very on point, it's very streamlined, it's lining up right to, to your point to the data insights and data analytics that we're getting. We're speaking very directly um, to our consumers um, as it relates to our brand portfolio. Um, that absolutely happens across across our portfolio, if you will, of markets. Um, and um, like an example, I just told you, we launched Loyalty 2.0 in Arizona. That, because Arizona is different, right? Because it's rec you don't necessarily have an opportunity to capture information from every single person who walks through your door, right? So you need to have a reason for them to like, what's, why am I going to give you my email? Why am I going to give you my, why, why do I want to sign up for your text messages, right? And um, if I'm, you know, if I'm a rec customer and I really just want to be more anonymous. And so, right, giving folks a reason um, to engage with us, um, which we're, again, that loyalty platform we think is, um, is one of our answers um, for that market so that we can continue to build that customer insights, you know, muscle, it requires inputs, right? Um, and so to, to be able to understand who those consumers are. But certainly we have, you know, tools that cross, like our CDP as an example, cross all, that's across all markets and um, that we're able to then pull from and come back and bring into our large scale database that is also shared and we can segment all kinds of different ways. And you guys rely on that to kind of control that customer journey you were describing earlier, where they go from this product to that product. It really kind of helps yep. create that roadmap. That's right. And we're also able to, again, segment by, by personas, right? So, you know, you may not realize it, right? But because you fall into these specific <laughs> graphics and you're buying yeah. these specific products, you're going to fall into this specific persona yeah. for us. And so we're able to not only as, you know, you, but also in your group, right, track and see what are those trends over time. And and by the way, what's super exciting, if we run or we drop this strain or we drop this product or we run this promotion, how responsive, um, how responsive are you to that type of activity? 
I know, very sounds a little cool. Brother, very responsive. Know, very. Yeah. <laughs> so, quick true or false? If Jordan Travis was healthy, Florida State would have beaten Michigan and won the national championship. Oh my god, a thousand times true. <laughs> Y'all don't want to talk to me about that. I'll get so just wanted to ask if you thought that. Oh my gosh. Yes, I did. I I absolutely, absolutely feel that way. Florida State was robbed, all the things. I am one of those fans for those folks who whatever. And I cannot wait for us to figure out a way to get out of the ACC. Love it. It's crazy. So one of the the focus recently has been MSOs educating institutional investors, retail investors about the industry again. What would you say for them about TrueLeave and the opportunity that lies ahead. Just a quick yeah. Time. So I was actually I just uh, I just got back from New York. I was in New York yesterday. I'm doing a, a, you know meetings with investors. Um, and to your point, um, you know getting back in front of folks, reintroducing TrueLeave, the the sector, some new faces, some old faces, some folks who've been kind of on a little bit of a break and back and reengaging. And I mean, I think that the message is there's never been a more exciting time to enter cannabis. Um, first of all, you've got great entry points, you know, in most of the names. And really, what I see ahead, I mean, I've just mentioned, um. I think, you know, truly in particular, we have, you know, the largest catalyst, I think, that has ever happened uh, to a single company um, in this space ahead of us, um, you know, and it's ours to take advantage of along with, right, everything that everyone else um, has as well as it relates to federal momentum, um, rescheduling, right, safer banking, all of those wonderful things as well. And so um, really, when you look at the potential growth in the sector and in truly in particular, it's really, I mean, it can't be really understated at this point. And alongside of that, though, you also have a very healthy the underlying core business. And, you know, you look at, again, our, our cash flows, you look at um, where we sit vis-a-vis um, others in, this, in, in the space, um, our ability, we've, we retired $130 million of, of notes where um, we bought back, right, bonds in the open market, feel very, very strong in terms of our ability to um, to remain, um, you know, incredibly proactive as it relates to managing our balance sheet and um, moving forward. Um, and, and again, to continue the momentum that we began to see in Q3. What question do you wish more people asked you? Oh, uh, if, if Florida State, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I get very excited about the work that we're doing, not just for today, but the, the track that we're laying for the future, right? This industry is very, what have you done for me lately? Um, I think a lot of that is just where, where we are on the, in the investment cycle. And, you know, the fact that we've, we've got a lot of, um, a lot of folks that are, are more short-term kind of in, investors, which is, is fine. Um, but, you know, I think that will ultimately change. And I think for us, it's about building building a business, not just for today, but for tomorrow and the day after and a sustainable company. And so, um, you know, the conversation that we're able to have around, you know, persona work and and Cannabis 2.0 and data insights and how we're utilizing that into our brand strategy. And, and all of that is just so critical when we think about um, really the next wave and the normalization of cannabis um, beyond kind of this little bit of wonkiness, right, that we're in today. And so I think one of the biggest challenges as a leader is to continue to push forward on those things while not getting too ahead of your skis because you we, ha- we are operating in today and we need to be successful and we need to make sure that we're um, foundationally strong in the current environment, but, but continuing to keep our eye on what is going to make us great today, but outstanding, right, and really be a, a game separator for us um, in, in the future incredibly tough balance. All right. Prediction time. Kim, as the leading figure in the Florida cannabis market, what undervalued opportunities do you perceive in terms of market growth, evolving consumer preferences that investors might be overlooking, particularly as it pertains to shaping the market's trajectory in the upcoming years? Wow. Okay. That was like a compound sentence with like four subparts. So I just want to make sure. So you're talking Florida specific. Specifically Florida. Okay. All right. I just want to make sure. Um, I think that one thing that folks may be overlooking is the fact that we have a incredibly large dormant footprint that we're going to be able to immediately turn back on. And so I would tell you that capacity is absolutely going to matter. You only have between January and May of next year. So if you haven't already started it, it's going to be tough to get it finished between now and then. And capacity will absolutely be a game changer, I think, for um, for those of us who have it. Um, we're going to be able to lean into it. And for those of us who have it at scale in a very quality way, the ability to, and this is a lesson we learned from before, right? The ability to be someone's first relationship in, in a legal cannabis environment 
cannot be overstated. Um, the value and the stickiness of that customer relationship is really yours to lose at that point. And so the folks that can have, um, again, the operations um, it, you know, streamlined in a way where they're able to meet customer demand with high quality product, with a great customer experience, that customer is going to be theirs to lose in the future. And, um, you know, the, the value of that customer is incredibly high. So um, that's what that's what I would say. Love it. Kellen. I think I agree with everything Kim said, but I think that I'm going to look a little further into the future, right? And kind of piggyback on the capacity comments she made. And Florida is uh, surrounded by water on a lot of sides, right? So if For you're sure. looking, if you're looking at maybe like, <laughs> an easy international distribution hub oh, okay. and you have capacity, right? There's existing ports. I think that it could be a really attractive hub globally for distribution of cannabis to the rest of the world. So I think that that's a, a huge thing that I don't think a lot of people really consider when you look 10, 20 years out, once it is like yeah. a global trade kind of commodity good. What do you think, Ryan? I think it's funny to even sit here and talk about the fact that like, I think Florida is still being underappreciated for what the sheer size could be, just given the fact that it's like pretty much everyone's talked about it for the last six, seven years about sheer size. And here we are and $6 billion, people are like, oh, it could be bigger, smaller. It's a massive, massive number. And the tools that your team has in place just to be resource-wise ready and loaded to go, I think can't be understated because in the previous states, they had them a little more fragments where your team has already built out this data platform. They understand consumer preferences. They're tightening up their brands. They're really honing in on the messaging. And like exactly like you said, that first relationship is so crucial for so many people who are going to experience cannabis for the first time and are probably going to love it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They probably are going to love it. They're probably going to love it. So Kim, <laughs> for those who want to get in touch, they want to buy TrueLeaf stock and they want to reset your stores, where can they find you? Yeah, so uh, www.trueleaf.com. And um, we have a investor relations tab there with our ticker symbol and all of our recent press releases, et, et cetera. Um, definitely click there if you want to listen to our next earnings call, which will be February 29th, um, leap year day um, in the morning. And um, we start about 20, 30 minutes with a bang and playlist and stay for the content. So awesome. thanks so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.